2: uh, we are recording another beautiful episode with these beautiful faces. Good to see you, boys. Today, I have with me Matty A., the hero of hospitality, zooming in from Sacramento, California on this sunshiny day. We also have Mooch, who just finished an amazing uh, real estate retreat, so he's going to share a lot about that today. So good to see you, Mooch. And of course, the sage himself, Mr. Mike Ayala. How's it going, brothers? Doing good?
3: Doing good. Doing good. What's up? I'm feeling all right. right. So we
2: have a, we have a lot to talk about. I think we're going to start out with talking about a big topic of inflation. It's it's a topic that's on everyone's mind. Um, it's a topic that's affecting everybody in different ways and different businesses in their personal lives. So I thought we would kind of start with that, um, break it down wherever wherever it goes, um, and then we have a list of grab bag topics. I definitely want to hear from Mooch today about his. Real estate rock stars retreat. We I, I got to see Vivek Ramaswamy this weekend, so it's kind of a fun little thing I want to share there. We have some business ideas that we want to run by the uh, by the group. Some all, all kinds of fun little topics. So we'll go where it goes at the end. But let's start with inflation, and uh, I'm gonna let Mike Ayala kind of start the process here. Mike, why don't you kind of frame the issue as you saw it, and you you talked a little bit about this last last time, and so we didn't get to inflation, but I'm sure we all have a lot of different perspectives, and again, you know, we got to think about how does this affect people and what can they do with the information. Um, But let's kick it off. Here's another episode of the King's Table. Let's go.
3: Here we go. Um, Go. Yeah, I think I think the inflation conversation is going to be interesting, and um, you know, Aaron was talking about this before we got started. I think really just bringing this back to you know what is inflation, why does it exist? Because I think we're in this period of time where. You know, there's a lot of people that have understood inflation for a long time. Um, but the question that I always ask is, how does this apply to me? And Aaron made a really great comment. And I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat for a second that, you know, maybe this is like, maybe this is intended for certain reasons. And I'll let Aaron get into that. But the 3000% inflation was interesting. There was an article that actually came out in Bloomberg. And this was like two weeks ago. But it, it, so when we think about this in the terms of when the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, If you take $100 at that point in time in 1913, and you looked at the purchasing power of that $100 and what it could buy, today that's 3.2 cents. The the literal value of that, and and there's a chart on the Federal Reserve site that shows this, but literally inflation since 1913, 110 years, 3,000%. That means that if you had $3,000 over the course of that time, it'd be basically zero today, right? And so... Um, I don't know if anybody wants to jump in or you want me to pull up a chart here in honor of Aaron Amuchasteghi, but.
1: As you're pulling that up, uh, I think it's important to remind um, just listeners in general. So this is the King's Table, but you might be listening to it on my podcast, you know, the Real Estate Rockstars podcast. But I just want to remind everybody, all four of us have our own podcast with our own genre. And eventually this is going to be on its own place, but I think we only mentioned it the first one. And I'd love it if everybody really quick can just say, like, so if you guys want to hear about real estate stuff with real estate agents, mm-hmm. that's my podcast, the Real Estate Rockstars podcast. But guys, reshare where yours are so like my people can hear and and vice versa, just to remind everybody there's more places they can hear from us.
2: Yeah, Mikey, you
3: want to go? Sure. Um actually somebody else jump in. Okay. Well he's getting
2: my, my podcast is called The Rich Equation. Uh, I really do think that this is going to merge. It's coming. It's becoming something really fun that we're enjoying and, and the audience is really engaging with it. Um, I'm seeing engagement all across my platforms too, so I, I'm excited for that. But reach out to me on Instagram or on the pod um, and my podcast is all about what it means to live a rich life. So it's a little bit more broad than just real estate, but we talk about routine, mindset, um, income. And just general leadership lifestyle. So, um, that's me. Maddie? Yeah, I mean it's an easy piggyback off of you, right? I think why
0: all of us fused and, you know, aligned so organically was because we all have some variation of that mission, right? And mine is just building a life far beyond what dollars can buy you. And that's what the Millionaire Mindcast has been all about. It's been interviewing people that are killers in business and have built really great financial stories and businesses, but that don't live bankruptly in the other areas of life as well. Cause I know for me, one thing and why I love you guys is, you know, uh, in, in our own, you know, regards, every single one of us have some type of business to point to that has allowed us to build wealth. But we live just as intentionally and purposefully in all the other categories of our life as well. And I think that's something that is really, really important today is to highlight focusing on business and and why we talk about a lot of the topics we talk about. Um, that being said, you know, it goes far beyond how many dollars, you know, commas and zeros you have in your bank account and also how we can go out and use that for good. So that's Millionaire Mindcast that I put out three episodes a week on. Awesome.
3: My podcast is Investing for Freedom. I've I've often said it's not really a how to podcast. I don't really get in the weeds on buying your first single family property. It's more of a how come podcast, like what is the reason why we mm. want financial freedom? Um so I really like to bring guests on and really dive into what drives them, what motivates them. Yes, how did you accomplish this? But really what's the what's the driving factor? Because if somebody wants to learn how, you know, to flip a single family house, there's there's a ton of courses out there to learn to do that. But I think at the end of the day we're all really looking for community and people to challenge us and and what was the mindset behind, you know, Aaron Amucha Stegi and in battling through all this stuff. And so, uh, yeah, investing for freedom. It's on all the platforms. You can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm, I'm going to go all in on YouTube going forward. I'm going to follow Maddie A and, 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 and get some, learn how to do, if you like that, like ding the bell and put your thumb up and all that stuff. So anyway, there we go. All right. Can you guys see my chart? We yes. You, yes. All right. Here's a couple of things I want to point out before we really jump into this. So 1913. This was the foundation of the Federal Reserve. A few things that I think are really interesting, and I'm going to not try to go off the deep end. Um, but when the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, this if, the, the benchmark on this is $100. So January 1913 equals $100 of purchasing power in the consumer dollar, if you will. What I think is really interesting, and I was um, I, I said this off camera before. Um, Maddie was jumping on. Aaron, you weren't on yet, but I found a quote from Ben Bernanke, and I think it was uh, 2004. And he's quoted in a speech saying, Yes, we did that. Yes, we caused the Great Depression. Sorry that happened. We won't do it again. And that was a quote from Ben Bernanke, by the way. But a lot of people, and again, I don't, we'll get to like, how does this matter? But when you look at 1913 here, this is what I find really interesting. The purchasing power of $100 fell by like 19, let's call it 21, by 40%. 50%. Yeah, I mean, no, it was... It, Over the, like a 10-year like period. Yeah. Um, and then here's so what's already, crazy we, too.
2: We already knew that they weren't going to work.
3: Well, it's wild. Um, a, a couple other things that I want to point out, and then we can talk about, you know, get into the fundamentals of this. But what I think is really interesting, we obviously had a rebound when things started working out a little bit. And then when you look... When you look at um, this period of time and you look at the Great Depression and what was going on here, one thing that's really interesting, um, Roosevelt took us off the gold standard, or not took us off, but he made gold illegal here in 1933. Um, they recaptured all the gold from the citizens. They said, you have to turn your gold in. And at that point in time, an ounce of gold was like $20.70, something like that. Um, not That's not the exact number, but... So they, they took all the gold back because the dollar was backed by gold. And the thing that's really interesting, and I'm not here to be a gold bug today, but I think this is just a premise for understanding like what really happened here and why the value of the dollar imploded and what they're really trying to do. When you look at this prior, prior to that happening, if the government wanted to go borrow a hundred dollars, they would basically have to have a hundred dollars of gold, which would be five ounces of gold, right? Well, Roosevelt makes it illegal to hold gold. And then literally one year later, he changes the peg price of gold from $20.70 to like 34 bucks. They they devalued the dollar by like 30%. So they confiscate all the gold. That's the only asset that's backing the dollar at that point in time. Now we know there's no asset backing the dollar today, but they confiscate all the gold, which is the only asset backing the dollar. And then they devalue it by 30% a year later. And the only reason I'm pointing that out is not because I want to sound like a crazy gold bug, but this is what the government, they, I mean, the government linked with the Federal Reserve knew that if they can unpeg this from a real tangible asset, then we can do whatever we want. And so if you look at this chart, and then I'll, I'll get off my um, soapbox and we can talk about it from a practical perspective. But when you look at this, um, the 1920s were called the Roaring Twenties. Why? Well, because the Federal Reserve stepped in and they created a fiat system that, yes, it imploded immediately because they had to kind of reset. But then when they got their legs under them, you can look and see that like things were really good. And then we had this huge climb in, in the actual purchasing power of the dollar. And then we enter the Great Depression. And we start to see this. And there was all kinds of war and everything else in this period of time, too, obviously. But the other thing that I think is really interesting and you guys probably know this, but in 1970 is when Nixon took us completely off the gold standard. And again, I'm not here to advocate for a gold standard or not. But what I am saying is that the day that we remove the asset that backs any economy's currency and turn it into a fiat system is the day that we can create inflation, temper inflation, create debt, and when you come to today, the reason why everybody in this room right here loves real estate and business, by the way, is because it's, only, it's one of the only assets that are left that really are backed. This is, a, what's the number it's one asset that banks adjusted. like?
2: They're inflation yeah, adjusted. Yeah,
3: If you look at banks, and Kiyosaki's argued this for years, show me another asset that banks love like real estate. And okay, we're entering this period of time where maybe banks aren't feeling like they love real estate right now, but there's gonna be a correction. And we're going to come right back out of it at some point, maybe not right back out, but we're going to come back out of it. And real estate is all going to continue to be one of the only assets that literally you can put a fake dollar into and, and almost count on the fact that in five or 10 years, it's going to appreciate. That used to be gold, not really from an appreciation standpoint, but it kept the dollar, you know, or any monetary currency that a government was backed by from being fiat. And so anyway, I believe at the end of the day, when you look at this chart, I mean it's literally three point two cents today. That's where three thousand percent inflation comes from.
2: Mike, it'd be interesting to see this chart invert like basically also charted with the amount of money supply. Because it's probably um, a perfect X.
3: I'll show you um one second. Let me uh let me let me pull something up here that I think is interesting that is not it's not the same thing that you're saying. However, it's similar.
1: Um, I tried to pull (laughs) up the fund, the fed fund rate to try to line it up with Mike's chart too. But the, but the Fred, the same economic source only tracks it back to like 1953 where the fed fund rate starts at zero. So, and is that when it started? Is that when the fed started doing rate? And if so, what were they doing from like 20 to 1953? Like what was the, what was the point of the, of the Fed back then, because it, it looks like they didn't start doing it like the Fed fund rate adjustment stuff didn't, that wasn't until the fifties. I,
3: so I don't know this as a fact, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking because we were still so pegged to gold that they probably didn't really, there wasn't probably the volatility where they needed to worry about the mass amounts of banks. And there probably wasn't as many banks as well.
1: And so, yeah, there was no bank, instead of raising rates or taking them down, you would just adjust the, the peg rate of gold, the, I bet maybe there's a chart somewhere with that. That's cool. Is there another chart you're pulling up for us? I,
3: I just think yeah. this is interesting. So can you guys see the two charts side by side? We can now, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I have a version of this that I built and I couldn't find it today. Um, but but this will get my point across. So I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I was thinking about the purchasing power of the dollar, which is on the right-hand side um, since the foundation of the Federal Reserve. And this is actually a different timeline um, on the left is the medium sales price of houses sold for the united states and this is um this is from the St Louis Fed from when they started tracking it and so really, this starts in nineteen sixty five which would have been you know somewhere somewhere in in this range but when you look at so I overlaid these two charts um in the same period of time and if you look at the value so th- a lot of times people talk about the rising cost of homeow like home ownership or homes or whatever. And it feels like a rocket ship from the left to right. Or when you look at the purchasing power of the dollar, the same thing oppositely correlated from um, left to right, it drops. And so what I did here on the left, this is basically, if you could just think about flipping this the opposite way, the price of real estate is almost directly correlated to the devaluation of the dollar over time. Inversely, which, really,
2: inversely correlated.
3: Yeah, and sorry inversely um i think of i think about it correlated cuz i I, yeah. I view it that way um but anyway that's the thing that i wanted to share because at the end of the day um i try to i mean i'm not really that smart so i try to keep things simple and that's what i really wanted to see like if i compare the purchasing power of the dollar to real estate like what does that actually really mean did real estate basically real estate's gone up 3000% if the purchasing power of the dollar's gone down 3000% right
2: yeah. Why is it, why is it that governments make it so important for its citizens to own homes? Is there a correlation there? Governments is a loaded
3: statement because our government is one of the only governments in the world that actually puts an emphasis on home Um mm. You know, you go to, you go to so many foreign countries. I was good friends with some Australians because the town I came from was a gold mining town. Um, and they're, they're like, you guys are crazy. You guys all own homes. Like people in New Zealand and Australia, like a small percentage of them own homes. It's, this is a thing that the United States really has led. And it was through fractional reserve banking, being able to do the lending and also the Federal Reserve that we sold this idea. Because here's the thing, when the asset became no longer gold, the federal reserve and the treasury the federal reserve by the way is not federal and we know this i think but this is really just a collection of banks and their boards they still want assets so how do you create assets if you're going to pull the value of or the, the what's backing the dollar away from gold then what's the asset well let's just create this monetary system with fractional reserve banking where we can just create fake money and if there's a $1000 deposited in our bank then we can loan out 900 of it and then let's create this system where we just You know, and by the way, America has been built on this system. And so we wouldn't have, we would not have the prosperity that we have today if we weren't also in the situation that we're in today, which we're all scared and everything's crazy. And we feel like the world, you know, life's over. But the reality is this fractional reserve system and this whole fiat currency is what has made us really prosperous at the end of the day. So I just wanted to caveat your statement, Ashish, by saying, you know, I don't think it's governments in general. I think it's a few governments in the world that really focus on making home ownership such a priority. Because it's the way that they transfer wealth, they give us the money, and then we go out and we build all these buildings and create jobs and everything else. And then they lend us the money for it and then they take it back from us in a downturn.
0: Well, I think Mike hit the nail on the head there, right? Because at the end of the day, debt is money, right? And debt for a lender equals asset and debt for a borrower equals liability. And so tying all of that back in, you just said, it. I mean, we were talking about this uh, when we were camping this last week off grid in Canada and it was talking out and it, it just reminded me, it popped back into my head around our greatest strengths can also be our greatest weaknesses or our greatest liabilities, right? And so we're in a season right now where for a lot of people, You know, debt was one of their greatest strengths and one of their greatest tools of good debt equaling leverage, wealth building, you know, creating opportunity for communities and our economy. But when that script flips, it's really the top puppeteer that is the one benefiting from all of that arbitrage that they've created in the system through what Mike just explained there in a really eloquent way. So I find that to be something that is very interesting to think about how we engage with the thought in this conversation of inflation while still trying to understand that it's a necessary evil of our system that has really created all of this opportunity. And yet, if you're on the wrong side of that coin, it can be very uh, detrimental. Yeah.
1: I want to say like, we kind of went into like not, not really tin hat type stuff, but the, but like the whole, the the system that we're talking about or like inflation and governments and like who chooses on this big, broad thing. I think the reality is, is I don't man. Have I benefited from this system and man, have you guys benefited from this system? And once you understand the system, There is no better country in the world and there is no bigger single thing that you can benefit from. So understanding inflation and leverage and how it works is what creates billionaires short of like inventing the Amazon and short of like the little things, you know, that that like are real game changers. Inflation and debt is the way that normal people like us can become super, super wealthy. So even though it's like talking about there are like people in control, however we want to look at that. I'd rather look at it as like, understand this so you can be in control. So there was a question at the beginning of like, why do they want us to own houses that Ash said? And I think that was the American dream from the beginning. Like it was Mm -hmm. like, everybody was like, we want something. We want to own this. We don't want the government to own our shit. We want to own our shit. Like when people started moving out West, it was like, you can have the land. The land is yours. Just go take it, put your flag on it. and now you own it. So, so I think the, the fact that the U S owns every, like how we have this thing where you need to own it instead, that was built in our culture from like day one. Now the ways to do it and the ways for other people to profit on it and get their hands in it too. Well, that's this evolving thing, but like the desire to own was like built in us and built in our forefathers. And like just that idea of, I want to be in control of my own destiny. It's in, it's really interesting that people in their, you know, 20s and or early 25s and 30s now, the desire to own is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. The desire to own now that's like this cultural change almost is like, I don't want to own something. I want to be able to travel the world instead. Like, yeah, if I own that, like there's this draw for horizontal income, then there's this other side that's like, well, if I just rent my place, I can go live in hostels too and travel the world on 30 grand a year. So, so there's a lot of interesting things in that. and then. And there's lots of stories too with inflation. And I remember like when uh, September 11th happened and they lowered rates. And then at that time, the fed chair told everybody go take out second mortgages on your house and go spend the money. They said, you guys have these giant piggy banks in your home, go take out second loans on your house and spend the money, simulate the economy, go buy the boat, go buy the RV. Like, go get the jet skis, like do the things. Your house has this big penny bank and the government and the U S needs a, the economy to boom after September 11th, like do this for your country. I would literally remember seeing him come on and saying like for your country, take out a hundred thousand dollars second and go buy a car, right? Like your comp, your country needs you to boost the economy and that's your piggy bank. And then man in like what conspiracy theorists could have just couldn't have drawn up better. Then five years later, six years later in 2009, so many of those people lost their homes. Now, whose fault and all that and the the lending stuff? I'm not going to get into that, but like that's the power and the deep power of, of inflation. But another concept that really comes out of that, right? And so there's, and that's happened like throughout time. But I think I remember early in 2020 when we just started talking about inflation right after the first set of stimulus. Hey, this might cause some inflation. Because we weren't talking about inflation in 2019. We weren't talking about in 2018. In 2019, what the Fed was saying was they needed inflation to go up. Inflation wasn't high enough. And why would they want inflation to go up? And for 20 or 30 years, the government, like since the 80s, after they fixed in the 80s, since I guess since like early 90s, they've been actually trying to create more inflation. If you look at Mike's chart, it was crazy what it showed was like from like 19, like 20 to 1930, the value of the dollar cut in half in a really quick period. And then for the next 10 years, it went up a little bit. And so the dollar became strong again, and then it went down. But like from 1990 to now, like it's gone down, but it took 30 years to half again, right? So like, why did the government want inflation? Like, why do people want inflation? Why do do real estate owners want inflation? The, The reason you or I want inflation is we get a mortgage on a house. It's locked in for 30 years. So our new payment is $2,000 a month. So right now, that $2,000 a month, when you first get that house, might be 20% of your income, might be 30% of your income because you're only making $5,000 a year. And in 1990, that $2,000 would get you 2000 Whoppers, right? You get So you're trading. You're essentially saying instead of buying 2000 Whoppers at Burger King, I'm making a payment on my house. Well, today, the Whopper is $3.50. So today, I have the choice to go buy 700 Whoppers or make my payment. The trade is easier, right? Like, the, the trade is much easier. So the, it's, it's like it's costing me less. I'm sacrificing less today to make the same payment I was making in 1998. And so that is what inflation really is. As it goes up, your dollar will wants more. But the other reason the government tries to push inflation or people in power, let's just say people in power, people that have assets. We like inflation because we can pay stuff back with fewer dollars. Uh, Government has huge debt. Everybody successful has huge amounts of debt. Let's frankly, like anybody that's been successful at anything, especially in real estate, we have huge amounts of debt. So if we have fixed payments on stuff, we want inflation to go up because we want the dollar to be devalued. So when we're making those future interest payments, it doesn't hurt as bad. Yeah, I'm only sacrificing 700 Whoppers today. I'm not sacrificing 2,000. I could only feed 700 people a day instead of 2,000 on my trade-off. So that's like as it changes and what it's doing. And up until then, they were trying to make inflation, but technology would always offset inflation, right? And so that's this thing that like technology, like what can help inflation or what should help inflation or what offset inflation forever for now was technology would uh, offset inflation. Like, what does, what does that really mean too? So like 2005, you want a flat screen TV, you could get a 35 inch flat screen TV for 4,000 bucks, right? 4,000 bucks for a 35 inch flat screen TV. And today you can get a flat screen for 200 bucks and it'll be delivered an hour and a half. Right? And it'll be
0: 60 inches
1: and it'll be 60 inches. So it's the opposite of inflation. Right. So like so there's a lot of stuff where it's like your dollar buys you less, but technology offsets that in the fact. But it actually buys you way more TVs today. It buys you like bigger computer systems today. It act, it's actually easier and quicker to ship stuff today than it was before. I think it costs you less to FedEx something today than it did three years ago. Mm. to FedEx and way less to ship. And like, how about like having a podcast or like, if we want to build a website today with a credit card functioning machine, it costs us $40. And if you wanted to build a website in 2005 with a credit card functioning machine, your investment was $20,000 just to be able to accept your first payment. So in the past, inflation goes up, technology offsets it. Oh my gosh, it costs so much for shipping. Then technology makes shipping easier, more efficient. The trucks guide better. Right now, technology doesn't have a chance to really catch up yet. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of trades off. But I remember early 2020, somebody explaining that to me, like, no, they're trying so hard to create inflation, but nothing's working. Well, now it, we've finally seen uh, inflation go through the roof. And as we start to see it be adjusted, I think it's still, a, it's still a power. But I think it was just important for us to be able to chat about today. And, and I, I'm curious about any of your guys' extra Thoughts on, on that on the different sides of it. We've been talking about the Fed funds rate. We've been talking about why the Fed has been raising rates, and especially it's like they do like inflation, but now it went too far. And as they're trying to change it, and it's not you know adjusting as fast as they want. It's kind of like it's it, we are a new territory.
0: So I have a a, a question for you guys around inflation is always there. It's always going to be there, and it's going to fluctuate to you know extreme highs and and in alignment lows, right? How should people who are looking to build wealth be thinking about inflation? Because to give some context to this, I recently was reading an article. It was like on Wall Street Journal. It was talking about how even though inflation has fallen, consumers are still mad about it, right? We're we're all still kind of going, they haven't got it under control. There's still some narrative or story around why things are too expensive. It's hurting and killing the poor and the middle class, right? And so I'm going, maybe we're not looking at this the right way in terms of, you know, we've we've fixated, kind of going back to that gap versus the gain mindset, right? Of like, we're fixated on ideally what it should be and what we want it to be versus like, well, it is what it is. So what can we, how can we frame this conversation and how we engage with this? Because you just talked about it, right? And, and I wrote it down. I said, Rich, people love debt. And if you are somebody who's looking to build wealth and you're leveraging good debt in times of high inflation, even though it still hurts a little bit, you're you're faring the best out of anyone and everyone that at least compared to those who don't have either good debt or have really bad debt on their books, right? So I'm just going how is it a, is it a psychological thing? Is it a strategic framework that we should really be thinking about? Or is it just something so simple that's right in front of us in terms of how we should think about and engage in in inflation? Yes, there's obviously bigger macro topics and conversations around this, but let's just talk selfishly how an individual person thinking about and engaging with inflation in their own wealth building journey should and could potentially approach this topic.
2: Well, I I have a question comment to that because I think Mike answered it but he answered half the equation, right? Is that when you say rich people, you're talking about people that either own businesses or own real estate, right? That's the bucket we're talking about. And we just spent the last 15, 20 minutes explaining why inflation is actually proactive for those two categories, right? For, for that category of people, citizenry. The other citizenry, the 98% of the population are W-2 employees. So 99% of the population, I kind of throwing this question back to you guys, is that 100% of the population, and when we talk about real estate, we're talking about single fam- your single family home and then potentially investment opportunities. So we're talking about both, right? So 100% of people can't own businesses because then you'd have no one to work. So you have 98% or a majority of the human population that actually works for somebody. They earn a fixed income. Often it's not pegged to inflation. So if inflation goes up by 10% or 5%, their salaries often, and this would be interesting to actually look at statistically, but I, I my gut tells me that it doesn't it doesn't mirror it perfectly at all. It's probably a long, big delay. So the only place that 98% of people are investing their money is in their home, if they can afford one, Or their 401k. And so where's the money in the 401k going? So my question is, yeah, I think we just gave the answer of how do people become successful or wealthy is you own a business or you own uh, real estate. But if 98% of the population don't own businesses, (laughs) then how do they become wealthy with a W-2? And is the four is four hundred and one k the answer or is it the trap? And that's that's what I want to kind of dig in for people. Mike, yeah, you and Ash, I think you just said it. It's the trap. And so
3: when when we say they, um, which again I'm, I'm a fan of the system. I didn't create it, but I understand it.
2: System is a system is a system, man. System is a system. What do they say? Don't hate the player, hate the game.
3: Yeah, (laughs) Um, that was my point. But
2: yeah. Well, and what I
3: love, I was thinking about when Aaron was talking earlier, and what I love about Aaron is how open and transparent he is around his learnings. And the thing that I want to say first and foremost is like, if you're if you're listening to this and you didn't understand it the last time around, um, and you found yourself in a spot where, gosh, I feel like it's too late. It's never too late because we're just going to enter another cycle of some sort. And and I'll just like go back to what I was saying about Aaron. The thing that I love about Aaron is when he learns a lesson, he gets it, he dissects it, he tears it apart, and then he talks about it. So the thing that I want to say, you know, Ash, to your, to your, when I, when I say they, when you talk about a 401k and, and home ownership, um, if you look at, I think I mentioned this last week, or maybe I didn't, maybe I just thought I did, um when you look at mortgage, it's literally the two derivatives of the word engage till death. Mort is death and gauge, engage. Like it's literally now I'm not trying to go off. I'm not saying you shouldn't go get a mortgage and I'm not saying you shouldn't own a house. I'm saying you go, go on a hundred houses and put mortgages on all of them because that's the system, but you got to understand it. And same thing with the 401k, you know, from the time from the time we start going to school until, you know, I mean, now they're getting asked when they're in like fifth grade, what are you going to be when you grow up? We're being programmed to go to college and it's everything that you're saying. And I'm not saying it's bad. It's Again, just, we system. live, it's just the system. And maybe we live in one of the, the great, I literally heard a stat this morning. I wrote it down on my, uh, my AM gratitude this morning. 42% of people around the world don't have enough money to have a nourishing diet. They can't even afford to have food to nourish them. And when I heard that this morning, I was like, we live in the greatest country in, that's ever, it, and I'm not saying compared area. to but like op- opportunity. There's so much opportunity, but the thing that I'll, I'll put a bow on it. Yeah, I don't think 401k is gonna get you you know, uber wealthy. And I also don't think that your W-2 job alone is gonna get anybody super wealthy. But do I think you have to own a business? No, not necessarily. You can continue in 10 years Someone could save enough money from their job to invest in a side business. or And there's two people here. I don't run a mastermind right now other than a couple's mastermind. So I'm not pitching anything. But Aaron just finished a real estate mastermind. Matty A teaches it all the time. People are listening to this podcast because they want to get educated. And so the thing is, it's like you don't have to quit your W-2 job. But I said this years ago, make more fake money and invest it Mm -hmm. in real assets. That's the Mm -hmm. only... That's the only like, now, what does all that mean? Go get educated. And the last thing I just want to talk about, you know, Aaron, when you were talking about technology and I agree with you hundred percent, there's a really great book out there. Um, I'll think of the name of it, um, about technology and how it's actually deflationary. Jim Booth or Jeff Booth, um, Tim or, uh, when you guys look that that book up, um, he talks about how, uh, Technology is actually deflationary. Now, here's what's interesting. What isn't deflationary, which is what Aaron was talking about, technology will actually bring the price of things down. When you look at construction, education, some of these industries, it takes literally, I came from the construction industry, and it takes 10 to 20 years to get new ideas implemented in the construction industry because of the type of people and owners and stuff yep. that work in that industry. And so to Aaron's point, when he was talking about you know technology being deflationary by nature, which it is, um, you know, Dylan, my son was showing me, Microsoft Simulator 2024 is coming out with this new version next year and it's amazing. I'm a pilot and so I kind of geek out on this and he wants to be a pilot. And I'm like looking at the technology that's coming out in Microsoft Simulator 2024 and I'm thinking to myself, how do they sell this for $79? Well, it's because they sell. I mean, once they build it, it's built. Yeah. They have to do some updates and stuff, but it's not like a house or construct anyway. So construction will also be deflationary at some point in time when it implements technology, it just takes forever. And so that was the only other thing that I wanted to say with that, but Ash, to your point, you make a great one. Like, what do you do with all of this? Because when I say they, I'm not talking about the wizard of Oz behind a curtain that you know, is trying to ruin our lives. It's just, I think we have to really just dive in and understand what does this really mean for me? And how do I get on the right side of it? And you can be a W2 employee and get on the right side of it. Just join Aaron's mastermind.
0: There you go. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I want to just to add that too. I think there, there is, I think about this often, right? Cause I, I talk about it in context of business owners, but I think whether you're a w2 employee, you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever, it applies to anybody if we ask the right question, which is what am i trying to accomplish and when do i want to accomplish that by? because i think there is understanding that we're all playing this grand scheme in the grand scheme of the game of life, we're all playing it together. The more we can understand the rules, the restrictions, the players on the board, right? The headwinds, the tailwinds, at some t- at some point in time, right? You play monopoly, enough, you pass go enough, you start to connect the dots on how to play the game. And so I think based on and there's there's a there's a clear outcome and goal that people are playing that game for. And so if you ask that in terms of your life, I think it's important to say, well, is the 40 is me investing all of my money in a 401k going to actually help me achieve the goal that I'm trying to achieve based on understanding more of this board game. Right. And so I think that it's really important for people to get a little bit more narrow and specific, understanding the macro picture, but really getting narrow about like very clearly, what do you want? What are you trying to achieve? When are you trying to achieve it by? And then understanding what game you're playing in, whether it's W2, whether it's business, whether it's real estate, whatever it may be, and understanding that there's a different business model and path and strategy for everyone based on that particular goal, right? So I think that's something that's important to... Add the other thing that I would add, so we were in our our little I was out in the back country so this this quote really resonated with me, and we were in a little small group, and we were with the guy, ashes back with spirit fingers and all and it kind of as as I was hearing us talk about this topic of money, inflation, the government all of this and it and it also applies in I think, people's personal journey to creating wealth, which money is like manure. The more you pile it, it starts to stink. The more you spread it around, the more it serves its pers- purpose. And I, as I was thinking about how we're seeing big you know, piles of money go to certain areas of our economy or not, it's starting to stink a little bit. And so it just made me think about how that kind of ties into this conversation a little bit. And I wanted to throw that in there to just get your guys' thoughts on, you know, what that quote actually means and how it might apply to this conversation. What's stinky. If
2: you hoard
1: stuff.
0: Yeah. And, and it also, you know, the, the thought that I was thinking about is just in terms of how stockpiles of cash are going to certain areas that are really, not smelling so good to a lot of people, right? And how that is, you know, you got a lot of money that's getting sent over to, you know, the war, whether you agree with it or not, right? You got our, you know, government debt is at an all-time high, you know, if that's starting to bother some people and smell a little off, right? So it just made me think about how that all kind of ties into this topic of inflation that we're, you know, we're discussing yeah. here and how it impacts everybody.
1: You know, I had so many people message me after our last conversation too. We're talking about like Ukraine and funding and, and why does money go there instead of Hawaii. And I think the, the, I think the hugely challenging thing that's really easy for people is like this misallocation, like everyone's belief uh, and that, that funds are being misallocated in places that we wouldn't choose. And it's really hard to say like, why would we send money here instead of here? And the reality is, is we all spend money differently, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm sure that there's times when I go spend money that you guys would even say, why would Aaron spend money on that when he could be spending money on that? And so we combine these issues, or I think people tend to like combine the issues. You know, no one can afford to eat healthy, but we're sending money over here. Why doesn't the government just provide money over here? with tax money or whatever. And it's just, there's so many different things that decide where money goes. It's very difficult. And my only answer to that, and I have a couple of rapid fire things on those original questions. I think the biggest answer and the biggest solution is you have to take control of your own life, because if you sit back and wait for someone else to do it, like again, why do I want to be a billionaire? And I'm going to keep telling everybody here and everywhere else that I'm going to be a billionaire, right? Because I will make change, right? And if I have a cause like what happened in Maui and I'm like, hey, something big should happen over there. Well, if I'm a billionaire, I can make change and I could do it. Right. Somebody there are people out there that could snap their fingers and solve that. We're waiting for somebody to do it. But no one's going to really bail you out on stuff. Um, You got to be able to do it yourself. But we but as a society, we tend to combine a lot of issues. And I saw a lot of people message me and they're like, you guys are combining two totally unrelated issues. And I get it. And they were right. And it's just that the reason we do it is when you see a financial need here and money getting wasted over here, it's really easy for us to go, no, that's not okay. And like, well, if you're preventing nuclear war over here or you're helping over here, how do you value one life, one life over another? Mm-hmm. How do you value like – like, it's just really, really complicated. A couple of think- things just to, 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 to maybe put a pin on my opinions with inflation and maybe we can get onto to something else as you guys finish it. The other part of that, like uh, inflationary idea of why governments like it, why people like it, it's the way that assets get transferred from the elderly. So elderly people that are retired, we talk about that 401k, most of them are on a fixed system where they're going to get paid $4,000 a month for the rest of their lives. So if they if they start getting 4,000 a month today or $5,000 a month today, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, they're still getting 4,000 or $5,000 a month, but it's buying half the amount. So what inflation does, too, is it forces people that own assets to essentially sell those assets. Property taxes go up. Elderly say, okay, now I need to sell my house and transfer it to somebody else so I can capture that cash. So it's a way to get asset transfer from from generation to generation. Otherwise, you know, so the for whatever reason, I don't really know why that's needed, but that's one of the intentions behind inflation is wanting to do asset transfer. You know, I remember at the end of 2019, we're on these GoBundance calls and it's like stimulus is happening and we're like, what's going to happen with the world and all this stuff? And I remember at the time we're like, inflation is starting to go through the roof and the cost of debt is cheaper. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So what everybody said was like, get as much debt as you can and then buy something with it. If you're borrowing money at 3%, whatever you buy, the value is going to go up at 5% and that's your arbitrage, right? And so that was our play. So right now the cost of money is actually more than inflation. Maybe I think, right? So that's so that's why it becomes inverse. But I do remember end of 2019 we were like, this is super super easy. Like how do we make money right now? We borrow money super cheap and we buy assets. Assets for me is houses and like residential real estate because that's really simple and tangible. Not necessarily land. That's like its own battle of like goes up and down in random times. But an asset, a house that somebody's gonna live in. It's pretty well dialed in to like, that's an asset. It could be like an old custom car. You could buy like a 1950 custom car, put it in a garage and 10 years from now, it's going to be worth more too. Like that could be an asset. There's lots of different assets and hard assets that people can buy. And so the key today is trying to buy assets that will go up in value more than, you know, more than interest, more than the interest rates will that have this inflationary thing. You know, like what can one person do that all they have is a W2? I think it's important to note too, that a lot of people don't want to be business owners. They want the security. I remember having several employees that were like, you know, on the disc assessment, they're stable. They're like, I just want to check every month. I don't want to wonder where it's going. I I like, 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 yeah, I wish I got more, but the fact that I can just make sure that I get 4,000 bucks a month, I want to stick with, um, my last thing. And then Ash, you can take us away and finish this thing. The, as far as like technology and inflationary stuff, like we're just now seeing like modular homes, like in Austin getting dropped in backyards two weeks after you apply for permits, right? And they're getting dropped in at like a third or a fourth of the cost of construction that we were having before. Now it took a long time for it to happen, but like eventually there's things like that that can be very deflationary. What happens at first is somebody spends 500,000 bucks, they drop it in the backyard and they sell their house for a million more. But eventually what happens is people start to go like, oh, but there's that extra 500,000 you can drop it in the backyard and just sell it for $600,000 more or something. So we're starting to see some of the technology deflationary stuff. But I think the best thing, simplest thing, man, where, where, where simple people like me can get wealthy is by buying real estate. And if you can buy a house today that you can kind of break even on, on your mortgage, there's pros and cons to real estate. And it's not always easy. And there's like, you could also like lose an HVC system and be screwed. Like, so it's not like, it's not easy. But I think it's one of the only ways that somebody that only makes a W-2 can get ahead, like move into a house, rent out one side or, or whatever, because 10 years from now, your monthly payment's going to be the same. And if you rent a house, I guarantee that 10 years from now, your monthly payment's going to be double what it is today. So the only way that you start beating inflation is you lock in your cost of living expenses. Um, whether that's by buying a property you live in or not. So that's my, that's my mic drop, and I won't talk about inflation ever again for at least a week and a half. Can,
3: can, I, can I just reinforce one thing? When Aaron, Aaron, when you were just saying that, it's like, whether it's the tax code or whether it's lending, just do what the government wants you to do. I mean, where else does the government tell a Mm-mm. bank, hey, we'll back, Play we'll the game. back these loans... Other than real estate or, you know, SBA loans too, business. But like for, to Aaron, to your point, let's set businesses aside. Cause like you said, not everybody wants to be a business owner, but where else just do what the government wants you to do. They're going to give you tax benefits in the IRS code. And then they're going to tell a bank, Hey, if they qualify for this certain mortgage, we're going to back that loan because at the end of the day, real estate is gold now. We 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 moved like we moved off the gold standard and
2: it's now real estate. Yep. Just to add to that, Mike, also listen to the go- what the government is telling you. When you earn when you trade mon- time for money as a W to employee, you get taxed at 30, 40, 50%. When you own real estate, you're taxed at twenty percent capital gains. Yep. So they're even signaling to you through taxes. But I I think it's really interesting conversation. I just keep thinking about the few hundred employees that we all just within our ecosystem that we have and not everybody can work and also run a business um, on the side, like a side hustle kind of business. Real estate is probably the, the easiest reach, but I think a majority of people keep their money in their 401k. And often it's not self-directed. It's managed by some group of people in New York and everybody's taking fees. And I think there's something like 30 or 40% of your wealth is gone in a 40-year career based on fees. Um,
1: Mike's Mike's book that he talked about, Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future by Jeff Booth. Yeah.
3: Hmm. And Maddie, I want to, I want to expand on your quote, another version that I heard the other day, the shit that you have in your life today is going to be what fertilizes your fields in the next season. <laughs> mm,
0: I like that one. That one's yeah.
3: good. Good. Yeah. I thought that was I a, like another it. good spin because we're all dealing with some shit.
0: <laughs> Everybody is. I mean, I don't know if you guys just saw the post. I forget who posted it in GoBundance, but. Somebody had posted they just went to a big real estate conference and maybe this will be a good good way for us to segue into mooch what you guys were talking about and you know what you guys are seeing out there. And I know based on, you know, some of the guys in our group, you know, businesses are struggling, revenues down, rents are softening, vacancies are jumping up a little bit. I mean, you can see some of the big economists that are talking about the economy is slowing. I mean, they're the data is showing it, right? Which is why they're potentially gonna pause on more hikes this year. Um What, what are you guys seeing in your circles around, you know, real estate, what you were talking about, you know, at the the conference mooch and maybe give people a little context to what you do at these events, why you throw these events and what you're really looking to deliver and the, in the conversations that were being had, because that's the real time front you know line data and sentiment that you know people are reading about in three months right so what yeah. did you guys see what are you feeling out there as of you know the the close of the conference
1: yeah and i want to I, I was going to try to pull up that uh the talk and go abundance that guy had right where he said he had just come back from the multi-family conference and essentially yep. it was just like a bunch of dire news and if one of us can find that i think it might be reading and sharing some of it, whatever isn't confidential, but it's like what we were talking about two months ago, right? Like the writing, like what we're seeing in the multifamily space and the challenges that people are hitting with cap rate changes. And he went to a conference where there was thousands of people in the same business space and it was, and it was dire. And so one of the best parts about meetups is you get to see that. So I just had my first inner circle event out in Austin. And this was unique. So I do lots of different events. I do my real estate rock stars one that's for agents, no matter if they've never made a deal or not. But this one was a highly qualified, people had to be making at least a few hundred thousand dollars a year in their real estate investing business right now. We didn't accept everybody that, that applied for it. It was a high dollar ticket. It was 3,500 bucks. Then they'd come to my office. Everybody actually had to present and teach something. Right. So everyone had to present their best case and then they had to ask their question and their big challenge and the brain trust would answer it. So there was also a lot of stuff from me like stats and analysis and things like that. But the idea was curating experts from all over the U.S. that have been in this business and like related, you know, and like one guy is talking about how he's spending thirty five thousand dollars a month on TV ads to get by all of his deals. You know, and how he's getting these incredible deals because the people that watch TV ads at six in the morning to sell their house, half of them don't have phones. Right. And then other people are using like mailing systems and things like that. And so everybody has these different, unique uh, niches. And it's really cool to kind of see. The first sentiment that I got that you guys will love to hear is everybody said they love the King's Table podcast. Mm. Everybody said, keep doing what you guys are doing. It's freaking awesome. And all like on some of them was like, hey, what advice do you have for me about this event? That was some of the event. Keep doing the King's Table podcast. We love that you guys are talking about stuff that nobody else is willing to talk about. Uh, so I thought that was neat. And so they, as they encouraged everybody. Nice. Um, I also just got a text from somebody that said, the latest King's Table hit hard today. I just got this at 2.45. He goes, I'm not in the best season with my wife right now. It's been rough lately. Mm. I appreciate what you guys are doing and discussing. I, I appreciate what you're all doing with this show. Because one of the things we talked about last time was like, is this important as entrepreneurs talking about our personal relationships yeah. with stuff? And, and I just got a text that said, hey, that changed my life. And so, wow. um, so anyway, like encouragement Love to that. us. We got people from all over that said, hey, keep doing what we're doing because something that we're doing uh, is pretty unique here. And overall, there was a couple of things in the sentiment that I thought was really interesting everyone's business is down from where it was. Yep. Everybody is having to work harder. Everybody is having things that used to work, not work as well. Right. And everyone is facing this deal of the markets tougher and we analyze it all over. And there are some markets that are just crushing like they're only a month of inventory and so prices are going up, but that means they also have like a quarter of the volume. So yep. So the, to start with, it's like everybody is really, really struggling, and they're having the same challenges of how to choose the market. And I shared a, a house that I have that you know it should have sold for 540,000 dollars a year ago. Um, comps are at 470. I brought it to market at 450. I didn't get any showing, so then I dropped the price to 400,000. It's the lowest priced house in that zip code, 50,000 dollars below the next closest thing built in the last 20 years. And I got no showings on it. I still have had no showings, 50,000 bucks below. So what does that tell you? There are some markets. Doesn't matter what you do. Yep. Five months of inventory. You can be priced right. It's going to take you five months to get that offer in Waco. I think it, maybe I told you guys last time there's 30 months of inventory up there. You got a 1% chance of selling your house. If you wow. have it priced right 1% chance, you're going to sell it in the next year in Waco, Texas. That's crazy. 1% one out of every hundred houses is going to sell. Um, so the other part of all this, everyone that showed up is crushing it, right? Market's shittier. They got to work harder. Everyone's trying to pivot. I and love everyone's that. Like, and everyone's like, we're making tons of money and we're going to make more next year. And people are taking each other's ideas. And so one of those ideas was like, okay, so like the, if you got a month of inventory in Dallas, Texas, you got seven months of inventory in Austin, like go open your business in Dallas. All right. So if door knocking isn't working here anymore, maybe you got to go start doing TV ads over here. No matter what's going on in the market, you can either let it be the reason that your life sucks. I've been I've been stewing a little bit. I've been a little feeling sorry for myself about some of my stuff. But the coolest thing that was the most impressive about the event. So we talk about the markets. We talk about strategy. We talk about stuff. But the best part was that everybody is crushing it in spite of the the most difficult market they've ever been in. And unlike me, so I've seen the market in 2001, the market in 2005, the market in 2009, the market in 2000, I've seen this like swale. There was only one other guy there that had been in business more than seven years, which means all the rest of the people have only been in business since real estate was crushing and awesome. And so they could be letting this market put them out of business. And instead it was more about like, okay, this is what we're doing that works. And now we're going to focus on that. And so that should be inspirational of nothing else. Like our event was awesome. Like I'll hold, I'll host another one, uh, in a few months. That's the inner circle stuff where it's just people come. Like, I mean, they got to come to my office. They did cryotherapy at my house in the morning. They went out on my boat, on my boat in the evening. We even had Mike's son there driving a boat, teaching people how to serve. We had four boats out on Lake Austin at the same time. It's pretty fun, nice. but, um, but it was inspirational, man. And it was also inspirational that I got these guys that have been doing real estate less time than me, less experience than me, just crushing it, making great whining. money with great attitudes. When I'm like, what am I whining about? I think that's such a. If you can do it, I can do it. And technology lets me do business in real estate anywhere in the world right now. So, what's my Damn. excuse? I think that's such an important thing to, to highlight right now, too, is
0: a lot of people who have been crushing it for a long time kind of are, are suffering in silence a little bit and shit is harder right now. You know, people are dealing with real challenges right now, not just in business, but in their personal lives too. And, uh, why I love this group, right. Why I love some of the communities that all of us play in collectively individually, um, is to, to know that like, there are going to be seasons that just flat out suck and if, you know, you can suffer with other people like we, you know, I'll just say it flat out. We were one of my mentors and great friends. Many of us know Gary Jonas. He's going through a really challenging and he'll say it openly going through a challenging season of his business where they're going to lose over seven figures this year. And he, and while he has made, you know, multiple eight figures over the course of his career, he's like, there's just no, like anybody that's telling you their business is doing amazing and they're 10 xing right now. And they're, they're either not there. Most of those people are, are fucking lying and, yeah. and they're not being honest with themselves. And when you can be honest with yourself and be transparent and authentic, that is when the most growth happens internally and collaboratively. And so I just want to highlight for maybe, cause I know a lot of people that reach out to me through the podcast are going through some challenging seasons. And I think all of us can relate to Going through some type of challenging season, whether it's in business or real estate or net worth dropping because of blah 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 or cash flow getting crunched or you know personal life, kids, wives, whatever it may be, um, when, when you can when you can lean into those conversations, though, it becomes very very uh, powerful and impactful. And so I want to you know just just emphasize that piece, and I appreciate you sharing that, Aaron, because I also think to just kind of circle back on the business front. I wrote down, we had a business coach when we were in Canada come in and do some work with us. Um, and one of the things that he, I wrote down that, that kind of resonated with me. And I think it ties in with what you're talking about. And this, I think, cause it relates to, I, I know many of us read the book from Benjamin Hardy on two X is easier than 10 or 10 X is easier than two X. And there's an exercise in that book that talks about all of your 10 X moments and oftentimes, the 10x moments are not when you are crushing it. The 10x moments are when you decide to do something dramatic or drastic in seasons like right now when shit's not going so hot, right? And, and there was this, I wrote this down. It said, for every successful business, and I'll just leave that, that line blank there, for every successful marriage, for every successful dad or every successful mom, right? You can in, insert whatever category or topic, for every successful business you see, There was always a massive decision that was made that set it on that path to what you now call it a success for. And so I think you have to revisit that thought pattern multiple seasons and multiple times throughout your life and the trajectory that you're on and know that oftentimes the decision is often made. At least I know a lot of my 10x moments when I went through that exercise and was like, When did my life 10x or when did my income 10x or when did my relationship or health 10x? Oftentimes, it was out of those seasons that I was in the most pain. But it was also when I was in the most authenticity and honesty with myself and when I engaged and leaned into mentors, conversations, communities, amazing events like Aaron puts on. That allowed me to realize I wasn't, I didn't need to suffer in silence. I don't need to go through this by myself. And it often allowed me to condense that season of shittiness into something a lot shorter than I would have probably prolonged it to be and have done historically and other shitty seasons of my life. So I just want to emphasize that for anybody that's going through that right now. Um, this is the conversation that you need to be tuned into it. and Aaron's, you know, community and Mike's couples community and all of the, you know, communities that we all have. Are, are communities that you should be leaning into, especially in times like right now, if what I just said resonates
1: with you. Good
3: stuff. I, 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 wanted- I, man, so good. Just like the voices that we're listening to, as you just said that at the end is like, so it's always important, but it's so important right now. And when you come out of the season of, you know, time that we've been in, like after COVID and everything else, like I'm just the, the isolation factor and being alone, like now's not the time to be alone. And um, so no. I just so resonate with what you just said, Maddie. And the, the one thing that I just want to add on to that too, like, um, when COVID hit and Aaron was talking about this period of time, we're so fortunate to have that community that we have in Abundance, which we're, we're all a part of. Um, but I remember the conversations and I actually had this, I had this conversation with my pod and I talked to David Osborne about it. There was a, I, I had a note that had a balloon payment of like. I want to say, I want to say one and a half million at the end of the note, which is coming up next year. And, you know, all hell was breaking loose. Like we're thinking like businesses are going to go bankrupt. Like we're going to be out of business. Like who knows what's happening. And the, the guy that had this note, he comes to me and he says, Hey, if I give you, and I forget what the number was, but he said like, if I give you 650,000 right now, will you forgive the rest of the note, the balloon payment, not the rest of the note but the balloon payment at the end. And, you know, I talked to, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he was really scared. He thought, he thought his business might be done and he had some PPP money and that he was going to be expecting. And so I, I sat down and there's a, there's a point to this, but I sat down with my wife and I looked at everything in our world. You know, everybody always talks about like lifestyle creep in our personal lives, but I don't know how much we talk about business creep. And you know, those periods of time like COVID or ones that we're even in now. And if I had to, you know, punchline this, I would say, hey, like learn the lessons. And even if you don't understand it right now, um, it'll come back and teach you the lesson later. And so at that period of time, like Karen and I were looking at it and we're like, man, what could we do with that extra 650,000 right now? And even though it's money today that I'm not gonna be getting in 2024, I don't know if I'm gonna be getting that money anyway. I sought counsel. We looked at all of it. I ended up taking the money. And I'm sitting here today thinking, man, I shouldn't have taken that damn money. But the thing about it is like, and this is what I wanted to say with the psychology around this we make decisions at that point in time with the best information, the best education, the best wise counsel that we have around us. And I think, you know, to what Maddie was saying, like, I always, whenever I feel myself getting depressed, it's usually by something that I'm thinking about in the past. I should not mm-hmm. have I should not have written off that extra money for that money then but I didn't I didn't know any better then and then I also when I'm thinking about and I didn't come up with this somebody mentioned this but when I think about anxiety and what's bothering me I'm usually living in the future and so I think now more than ever it's really important for us to just be present tap into the wisdom the knowledge the experience the lessons we've learned and just make sure that we're surrounding ourselves with the right voices it's so important and you're going to make mistakes. You know, you could look back now and say, Mike, that was really stupid because that business is doing fine today. And <laughs> I left a lot of money on the table, but I didn't know. I I made the best decision that I had at that point in time with the information that I had. And you have to take it, you know, you kind of have to, you have to be careful with yourself too, because nobody knows. None of us
1: know.
2: Yeah. I'm
1: going to add in one quote. Don't waste a crisis, right? So I think one one of the things when that guy came back to Renegade, I remember the first time we ever had to tell investors we lost money for them after three or four years of amazing performance. My partner says, hey, Aaron, we never waste a crisis. So if we've got to go in and tell them bad news, we're also going to say, and moving forward, we're never going to be able to honor 15% annual returns again. If you guys want to come back and invest with us, we're going to be, our new base is like 6% and we think your upside is going to be like 10. And I remember when COVID happened, it was kind of the same thing. Like never waste a crisis, go renegotiate with who you can. And uh, whoever negotiated with you, Mike, he wasn't going to waste that crisis. He came like the, said, Hey, it's a crisis. Maybe I can get some good stuff out of it. So we're in a different sort of crisis now, maybe in some of our businesses, but don't, don't, I just got to just renegotiate my loan, my lease rate at my office because of it. Right. So, like if you are in crisis, don't waste it. Go make some changes, go renegotiate some stuff, you know, whatever you can right now while other people are feeling it too, because this too shall pass.
2: I also feel Maddie just said this too is that this is a good time to be having these conversations and to be figuring out where there's opportunity and to recalibrate where you spend your money and where you spend your time and where you're investing. And I think the next three years, and we've talked about it on the podcast here. There's some pain ahead, so don't stick your head in a pillow. Pay attention. One of the things I was going to say, Maddie, and about masterminding and stuff is, I think like right now, if you believe everything we're saying, and there's turmoil ahead, which creates opportunity, right? You should have zero excuses for why you can't create a group of people that you can mastermind with. And so I was just thinking about like, well. What are people going to make excuses? Oh, I don't have the money to join, you know, GoBundance or Vistage or I can't spend the money to go to Mooch's Mastermind or blah, 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 right? People come up with all kinds of BS. So if you're listening to this and you're not in a paid mastermind, call up four friends, meet on a weekly basis, schedule an hourly call, it's free, and come up with five or six things that you're going to transparently talk about. And then slowly, as you guys recalibrate your life, then maybe you can get into a paid mastermind with somebody of a higher caliber or whatever. Whatever, But just starting the conversations and having the transparency is where all the limiting beliefs kind of come out of. And I'm like psyched, man. I'm psyched. I'm psyched about the next three years, man. The mess is going to create so much opportunity. So speaking of the mess, let me let me kind of pivot and ask, ask or talk about a few other things because I think I've been watching... Two things that I think are super interesting, and I'd love you guys to comment. One of them are these these union negotiations going on, okay? And I think it's super interesting the dynamic of how we have these unions really drawing hard lines against these businesses to significantly increase pay. And we'll use the, the automakers one first. And I don't really have an opinion of of the negotiating terms because I don't know enough about it. But what I think is super fascinating is that we have a group of people that are significantly asking for more pay and more benefits, et cetera, perhaps even more pension. And they're putting these handcuffs on the companies, and the in a time where the cost of buying a car is the highest it's ever been. People are going to tighten their spending. Car sales are starting to go down. Interest rates for more uh, for uh, homes and credit cards and all of that is high as it's ever been. So car sales is going to go down. You can't keep... The only way to offset these increased costs is to increase price. Well, if your sales are going down, then prices have to come down. So you're basically negotiating with the devil. You're negotiating uh, basically against yourself. Um, I think the... The the union in California, the negotiations in California are a little bit different. And then I, the second topic I think are, is really interesting, and love your guys' feedback is this the Taylor effect, right? Taylor Swift, Barbie, Beyonce. I think they added like some six or eight billion dollars to the economy by the end of 2024. You have people having the highest credit card debt they've ever had. Like we keep talking about this, right? Interest rates are high, credit card debt is high, it's expensive to buy anything. Um, consumerism is not coming down, and here we go. I mean, to go to a Taylor Swift concert is at least two to three thousand dollars at minimum per person, with flights and hotels and this and that.
1: It is so much. More and than-
2: uh, I just also the second thing I think is super interesting is the Taylor effect in terms of her influence and popularity. In that, I guess she's dating some Chiefs player, and she shows up to a game, and now the prices of Chief football tickets have spiked the following for the player and the uh, all the Instagram accounts for the chiefs have all spiked like double, triple in like a week. Um, Just super fascinating. People are still out there hungry. They want to consume and Taylor Swift is cleaning up. So there you go. That's America.
1: It's the, uh, you know what Mike talked about in weeks past was like, people are lost. There's nothing people like more. When times are bad, then like a distraction, then the um, then the watching the gladiators go fight. And it is, it is fascinating. We were talking about before we came on, if you Googled Kansas City Chiefs score right now, most of the images on the slider have nothing to do with that. And it's pictures of Taylor Swift and, and her other famous friends that were at the game. And it's just like this strange laughable thing, how much influence people have and it's also impressive and i'm jealous of it right because influence man if i could like drink the something right like what i would wish i had more of its influence and so it's it's crazy but it's also crazy like who we give our influence and attention to it's the messy effect with like when Messi decided to go play for miami soccer miami went from the worst team to the best team their tickets went from nothing to thousands and people are flying in from everywhere, So it's impressive that like certain individuals can like become game changers and it is interesting to see too how people are spending their money, how people choose to spend their money when, um, which I think like, I think it's just saying like people will choose to spend their money on distractions or like, like one there's nothing wrong with like experiences over things i'm a big fan of that you never forget that you can never take it away you can eat tomorrow if you need to not necessarily responsible but it's definitely like a life choice that people are like are like all about right now is like go do the experience we'll start paying off our credit cards next month instead let's just keep going the amount of the economy stuff that has been booming that way is just it's just really impressive you know the only part that i know about um you know, and I, and my family went to a few Taylor Swift concerts and it was way more than 2000 bucks a person all said and done because of where they had to go to do it and the hotels and the outfits and the experiences. And if you're already going to be there, you might as well add some days and go to the best restaurants and everything else. So, and I know that my family isn't alone with that. So man, the Taylor Swift effect. Yes. Totally changed stuff. The auto worker union stuff is interesting. If you, I did a quick Google about like car inflation over time. And like, so the cost of cars has gone up a lot since 2020, but like from 2015 to 2020, it was going down. Cars were getting cheaper every year. Right. And so it's kind of like it's adding insult to injury at the time when these things happen. Cause I would be willing to bet that like profit margins for auto dealers two years ago, were just screaming through the roof, right? Cause demand totally. had gone up so high. The Mercedes G-Wagon, if you wanted one, you got on a waiting list for like six or nine months. And when you got it, they sold it for like $100,000 over sticker and people raced down there. They would call people and my buddy raced down there and like he got to sign it as like six other people drove into the parking lot. Right. And they were like, oh, I guess we should have gone 150 over sticker instead. So. Car makers were just printing cash, printing profits two years ago because demand, same with anybody that owned real estate, right? Like demand drove prices up and at that time it hadn't driven our cost of goods up. It just drew the resale. So profits went through the roof. And so now this negotiation of like, okay, it's time to increase wages to offset that. Like I don't, I'm not against unions. I'm not against organization to make things happen. I think sometimes they go both ways. I think sometimes people say, all right, we need to we need to make the adjustment and we'll make the change. They use the example of McDonald's when people were wanting to get higher wages and they started using technology and computers to take orders instead. So they raised wages, but there's three less people employed at every McDonald's. Yep. Right. So like everybody that's there got a raise, but cost to operate that building went down. So they risk that when they go in timing wise, but it's not that they don't deserve it. So it's, I think yeah. that is how wages happen. And that is how wages essentially just keep up with inflation. Right. Well, like if they need to, if, if last thing, if they need to catch up with inflation, right. They need like a 20% raise from two years ago. Yes. Right. So If somebody was getting paid 60,000 bucks two years ago, they need to be getting paid 72,000 now. Or, or is, did I even do my math right? Yeah, 72,000 now. So they need like 20% more to keep up. And so they're just, it's just about fighting inflation, but it's like the timing's wrong.
2: Well, the, yeah. one of the things that late. in my industry, in my industry, Mitchell Gold just went out of business. It's not necessarily my industry, but a residential furniture maker, right? Just one day, boom, they went they went out of business. In the last two or three years, they should have been making more money than God. Everybody was consuming residential products, right? yeah and so why is that company going out of business uh about two months ago, there was another very large privately held company eighty year old company, half a billion dollars in sales show up on a Tuesday, put a notice on the board, and I don't know maybe eight hundred employees gone right in a heartbeat well after eighty years of being in business, same thing residential furniture so I think that these effects are going to there are there, yeah, I mean, there are things going on in the economy that you're not gonna see until these businesses just put a notice on the wall. The second thing that I I studied Netflix and the way that Netflix does pay. And Netflix actually does something interesting is they peg salaries based on market of each role. So if if the market goes up, they pay you more. If the market goes down, they pay you less. I think it's really fascinating. So if you hmm. work for Netflix. This is true. A few years ago, I don't know if they still do this, but it was a policy that it used to be basically variable, right? And maybe they have stock options to offset that. But you're right. If the company's making a ton of money, they had to figure out how to negotiate salary adjustments then. But if companies are doing poorly and you're increasing salaries, then you're just setting yourself up for failure.
1: Right. You're just going to go. And I don't know
2: what's going on with these private companies because you can't really see what's going on. But now you you know, Mitchell Gold filed Chapter Eleven. I shouldn't say that completely went out, but they they followed Chapter Eleven, right? So that means a bunch of people are going to get screwed. Suppliers, all these debtors, um, it's a mess, man. It's a mess. Chapter <laughs> Eleven
1: to the like they so something that was happening to some businesses that may apply here or my buddy that runs a medical uh, device business. The the bank came to him in December. He had like a I want to say like an $8 million line of credit that was fully extended because that's how medical devices work. Cause you wait for payments for six months. And they called the, they called the line of credit due. Right. And well, like, that's luck- a big,
2: that's a big one too.
1: Much. And he was able to like, so he was able to actually like cut all costs start paying down a million bucks a month. And now he essentially has caught it up. But it's, but in like, but that was like a once in, but they told him he was like the only person that was able to do that. It's like a one in a million thing. So a lot of people like business as usual, but now your line of credit's due. So I could see that there could be a lot of companies like that in, in, in furniture and things like that, that not necessarily doing something wrong, but all of a sudden it's realizing they've been operating on debt and the debt gets cut off. So I, there's some bankruptcy that kind of protects that. So maybe they're not going to be gone forever or just lets them extend their payment on their line. But it may also be that it's well, gone. I'll look gone this
2: forever. up next time. But it, it'd be interesting to see how fast inventories are turning over right now because we're not buying we're not trading or importing as much as we used to. So our inventory levels are high. And if that inventory is financed through working capital through lines of credit, and then these lines of credit come due or the interest rates start to spike. And so th- there's probably some effect there too.
3: Yeah. I think it's just some,
0: the way that, and I, I'm speaking at this from a, a very limited depth of research on the unions. Um, that being said, I mean, when you just think of, you know, micro macroeconomics, right? I mean, you think of the car industry, it's heavily and densely populated in certain economies in the country. Then you also look at, you know, and and that's probably going to be pretty small relative to the overall grand scheme of things, right? But there is going to be a ripple effect if you've got, what, I think there's 150,000 workers that are potentially striking in the auto industry. Um, And obviously that, component will tie into GDP. I think there was uh, data that just came out. It was either today or yesterday on GDP for Q3 is looking to be around three and a half percent. So obviously we can't have a recession continue or start with that number. That being said, when you think about you know some of the headwinds we've been talking about over the course of the last couple quarters with higher oil prices, higher mortgage rates, the end of student loan payment moratoriums, a potential government shutdown. I know there were I think it was either earlier this year or last year you had um, freight railroads, you had you know UPS. there's a lot of this stuff that eventually could show up in future quarters around GDP and how that can potentially tie into some of the headwinds that we're seeing on a global scale as well. So speaking from that perspective, I don't know enough to confidently you know, speak to what I think is good or bad about that. But I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there's going to be some lagging indicators of these things that are going on right now that we should be thinking about and at least skating to where the puck is at when it comes to, one, how that impacts us individually and our households, our businesses, our investments, and overall, in a macro perspective, the economy of the U.S.,
3: it's interesting too, because when you look at like the the UAW thing, I think it's like 25 or 30,000 direct employees or something. But like they say that, you know, with suppliers and vendors and everything else, it could be two to 250,000 employees that are affected. But what's even more interesting, I mean, when you look at the supply chain stuff and then the price of like vehicles, I mean, if you take production out for a month or two months or three months of anything, and then this is the counter like just back to the inflationary conversation supplies down demand maybe isn't up because of the time we live in. But the reality you look at all of this, whether it's Taylor Swift and people putting things on credit cards or whether it's, you know, um, um, student loan. I actually saw a report a couple of weeks ago. I was going to bring it up last week when we were going to talk about this, but literally there's like, I don't, there's some number like 60,000, maybe it's even more. Some big number of people that are senior citizens that are, um, their social security checks are going to get, what's it called when you, when you they're going to get garnished when, when the student loan payments start back up because they can't make their student loan payments. And there's a clause in there that social security benefits can be garnished if you're not making your student loan payments. And when you look at all of this debt and then just the inflation side of it, just kind of bringing it back to that. I used to say this a long time ago when, when I had my plumbing and HVAC business, there was a period of time where they were gonna do all these cost increases in Nevada and, and they, some of my people were trying to unionize and I mean, don't get me going on unions, by the way, like I'll, anyway, that's a sidebar. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, like I used to say, what does a smart business owner do? They pass the savings on to the customer. And the thing at the end of the day with all of this is, is like your $100,000 truck just became one hundred and ten dollars or $112,000 truck. So this inflationary conversation, like-
2: That's why it's important of- to own businesses. You just explain, Mike, why it's important to own the business and not be the employee.
3: And as long as we have credit and debt, then we can keep selling trucks. If not, or houses or anything else. And if not, then we're all in trouble, which is why-
1: just-, just start dating Taylor Swift and you're good. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. solves, it solves everything. A lot of that stuff's deflationary. Right. So like in one sense, you're like, you know, automakers are going to raise the price of cars to offset the expenses. But at the same time, like if nobody's buying like the cost of a Tesla is down like 30 percent or something, you want to buy a brand new Tesla compared to where it was. So I think that's an example of technology. So we're seeing a lot of deflationary stuff. The cost of furniture is going down if a bunch of furniture companies are going out of business and filing BK. Like because for you to sell your product, Ash, you're going to have to price match all the other stuff out there till inventory has gone. Same with cars that are sitting there. Same with Teslas. And so like we've got a lot of deflationary stuff happening, but then like the unions are going to get paid a little bit more. So that's inflationary with their wages. 40%. But then then 25% of them are going to get fired. And so then it's going to bring the cost back down and then it's going to be deflationary because the 25% to get fired are going to be starting back. At square one, that's how complicated inflation is, and why well, it's so complicated for people to think that they can fix it, or why they should risk it, or why they should have like. You can't to just it. one thing. It's not one thing. That's why none away. of this
2: matters. <laughs> and that is the mic. That right? this is why none of this matters. This matters, yeah. but it is so complicated, and we think we can blame. Business owners, we can blame the government. We can blame our elected officials. Or why are they doing this? Or why doing that? It's so bloody complicated that it's not necessarily a solvable problem, right? This is just this is capitalism. It's going to solve itself. It is what it is. I think the only thing you can control is what you control. Stay within your circle of influence. I mean, I, I think going back to like our conversation about where to put your money, where to spend your time, all that stuff. I'm like, as an employee right now just add shit ton more value, get a promotion, get educated, like get an extra degree, do some side learning and, and figure out how to get it promoted, increase your salary by 30, 40, 50% and keep hoarding cash. That's my advice.
3: And like back to the, if, if this was all real money, it wouldn't be complicated because people would only invest in something that they would know. And so since it's not real money, Like go back to what Aaron said earlier, like we got to get on the right side of this equation. And um, I mean, until it becomes real money again, it, which maybe never, um, which that's, that's why it's so complicated.
2: We we should have a crypto conversation. That'd be fun.
1: Oh God, I'd be blind in that.
2: Like some action, quick
1: actionable stuff for people though. Like if you're going to buy a car, wait six months, like it'll be cheaper or buy, or kind of wait as long as you can because we're seeing a lot of incentives that way if you're going to read if you have an office lease to renegotiate man punt it go month to month or something because six months from now nine months from now a year from now your office lease is going to be less than it is today or the cost of an office building is going to be less i can't tell you what's going to happen with housing depends on where you live um but also with rates like I don't think mortgage rates are going to go down for another 18 months. So like take that for what it's worth. If you're going to be making a buy decision, you know, today, or you want to, if it's about rates, you're going to be waiting 18 months. And do you really want to wait 18 months or not? So you guys have any like little predictions of like actionable stuff about how people can like how, in how they could change their, their decisions based on inflation.
0: I think you, you just touched on the one that I, that's been really resonating with me, which is hard for me right now. And it's, just the idea of patience you know i think right now especially at the velocity at which the economy and and the world has been moving and is moving to to be in this space where everything really has slowed down in a really big way it's hard for me physically and mentally to slow down with it and yet i think right now more than ever people are going to make mistakes by feeling like they have to rush into a decision right now. If you don't have to do anything, don't do anything right now. There's, there's nothing wrong with not doing something. I always remember a, a talk that David Osborne gave, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And he's like, if you're winning right now, and that, that that context might be relative to what we're applying it to right now. But if you're winning right now and you're in a position where you don't have to do anything, if you're up 3-1 in the World Cup game right now, why are you going to go and attack the goal and take unnecessary risks and put yourself out of position if you do not have to do that? And so I think right now for me, at least mine is just being very clear on what it is that I'm trying to achieve when I'm trying to achieve it by and making sure that the decisions I'm making are aligned with that.
2: Mr. Sage.
3: I know this is like, I mean, there's, there's the fundamental stuff that we're constantly talking about. I mean, I think, you know, cutting where you need to cut and investing in your businesses where it belongs and, and real estate and all of the above. But the thing that Karen, and I've been talking about and Aaron, you know, kind of alluded to this earlier too, but I'm just looking at the areas of spending in our lives. Um, Cause there's some areas of inflation that are just crazy that, you know, if you look at the cost of certain things over a year or two ago, and there's a lot of things even, I mean, could I, can I, even just looking at the amount of times that we eat out when I go, And I know this sounds crazy, but like when I go eat out right now for just Kara and I, and I mean, it's, it's two, 300 bucks. We can shop now that the kids are all gone and out of the house. Like I can buy an entire week's groceries for Kara and I for the same price as like one meal out. And so I'm not saying, you know, I love having a good time. I love, you know, travel. I love dinner, but Kara and I are just looking at like, man, how do we, what could we do with this additional capital? um, Whether it's now today well, then on the other side of it, I forgive, you know, $900,000 loan a couple of years ago. But anyway, it's just, you know, it's just paying attention to where we're spending, I think, because, and I'm not a big saver. I'm not usually like, I, I'm not the one a couple of years ago that'd be like, save your money. <laughs> I love experiences, but also just it's opportunity cost. When I think about that from a business perspective, what is the opportunity cost of going out to eat three times a week? You know, and, and I could save four or 500 bucks a week by by cutting that down to one time versus two or three. And that's a lot of opportunity. I mean, that's 14, 15,000 bucks a year that you could invest somewhere else. So that's a lot.
0: The only other thing I would add to that before you wrap it up, Ash, would be right now, if, you're, if you are somebody that's looking to invest in real estate, and I'm curious, Mooch, if you're seeing more of this as well, the people that are savvy, with creative finance right now, I think are going to have a 10X leap in their wealth building journey right now. I'm having more and more conversations right now with sellers that are scared, even though they're holding firm on a lot of their pricing or they're optimistic about what can be deep down inside underlying what we talked about earlier is they're struggling or they're feeling a sense of fear. And that has continued to mount more and more and more. As time goes on. And I see more and more sellers being way more open-minded to structuring creative financing on deals that just don't make sense if you have to layer in debt at 7-8%. Whereas you can lock in some potential pricing with creative structuring on the terms to create a win-win for everybody that I think the people who are winning on the term side are going to win long term in a big way. If you can do that in a very strategic way that hopefully might coincide with where the market ends up based on what those terms look like. But right now, I think creative financing, those ninjas are going to be the ones in 10 years that 10x their wealth during this next season. And I'm betting big on that myself, because there's a lot of deals that are really just sitting stale and people have rising levels of motivation to make something happen. But they're not getting people who are thinking outside of the box creatively coming to the table and coaching them and guiding them on how that can work. And I'm seeing more and more of those opportunities start to get closer and closer. Maybe
2: that's, so that's a topic awesome. for next time, Matty. That's a good one. Yeah. What are some yeah. creative ways to structure deals?
1: The, a 30-second a add-on to that just the, ca- came up during our group. If you're in real estate right now, this guy talked about just going on the MLS and searching assumable. Right, And there was like 1,200 listings in his area where people had put into the listing the loan was assumable. Now that was it, intending that they would sign over an FHA or a VA, but that just starts the conversation for people that you could actually reach out to that know that their interest rate is what's important and that can probably do some sort of a seller financing type thing on it. And it's interesting for people in real estate, usually you get cash flow or you get appreciation. Usually you don't get both. And so, for people that are only interested in cash flow, let's say you're never going to sell this house ever, you're going to pass it down through generations, and you just want cash flow, then you can pay seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for a house, and have the if it's and if you take over their payment at three percent, it's your same payment as buying a two hundred fifty thousand dollar house. So it's like buying a house for five hundred thousand dollars less when you get to take over their rate if you're buying it for cash flow. As long as you're never going to sell it and you're buying it for cash flow, those subject two things are amazing. It's a big topic for next time. But like if you're in real estate, go search your local MLS, just search assumable to see how many people are actually saying their loan is assumable and start there.
2: I also want to process next time this concept ran across my desk. And maybe you guys know more about this than I do about people buying other people's liens and whether or not that there's an opportunity there. If you have a long-term perspective to go buy liens and then you know, based on the odds, see who goes out of business. I don't just don't know how that works, but you guys would know more. I'd love to process that too. So any any last words before I wrap it up?
1: Nothing for me. Good
2: stuff. Another successful episode. We struggled with technology today. I don't know what is going on with my internet connection, but we finally finished another episode of the King's Table we talked about inflation and how we have no idea what the hell's going on. I don't know if any of that was helpful to the listener, <laughs> but it's fun to talk about. It's fun to riff. Um, you know, just going back to what we what we said here is, look, focus on your your circle of influence, focus on what you can control, outearn the problem, manage your expenses, focus on what you're good at, and uh, don't get over your skis in a time like this. save save money. You guys, we all have time right now. This is going to be a great season of opportunity. So strap on, get in the right groups, get in the right masterminds, build your little group mastermind if you need to, um, but don't let a good opportunity go to waste. So here it is at the King's Table. Again, you can follow us on any of our Instagram handles. Uh, This podcast is launched on all of our our podcasts. So reach out if you have any questions. Peace. Bye, guys.